Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. You're joining me for another in a series of shows being recorded on site in Nome, Alaska. We've been interviewing some just amazing people who have insights into Alaskan Native health issues. And the person sitting across from me right now, although I am recording this show in the Norton Sound Regional Hospital, is actually someone who has worked for many years as a village health worker. It's great to have you, Wanda, with us. Hi. Thanks. Now, Wanda, you are have deep roots in, I don't know if you call it Indian country here in Alaska, but in, uh, you have Alaskan native roots. The last name is, how do you pronounce that? Aya. Aya. Mm-hmm. So that's a traditional Yupik name, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, correct. And so you were based for many years in this Nome region, but in a small village. Tell us about that. I'm from Savunga, Alaska. It's um, a village on St. Lawrence Island, Okay. just out of Nome. So by just out of, um, do you know roughly how far it is? Is like a, a quick uh, ride in a, in a canoe? No. <laughs> no, the only way to get there and here is between, you know, Savanga and Nome is by airplane. Okay. Uh, I I haven't actually mapped it out, but I think someone was telling me it might be a couple hundred miles. Does that sound right? 160-something miles. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So between, yep. you know, 150, 200. And so that's where you, did you grow up on the uh, on St. Lawrence Island? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Savonga. Okay. Yep. And how large a village is that? Uh, population is probably between over 700, close to 800. Okay. And now is there a medical clinic on Savonga? There's a village health clinic, yes. Okay. And mm-hmm. do you have health workers there? I mean, do you have nurses and doctors? There's um, usually a PA and uh, a group of health aides. Okay, so you were one of the health aides who was working there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, on a previous show on American Indian Living, we had uh, Rosemary Simone mm-hmm. on, who, of course, was involved in the, the health aid training program. So some of our regular listeners have heard about that, but others are just joining us for the first time. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what a health aide is and what kind of training you had. Um. As a community health aide, we have a continuous training. Mm-hmm. When I first started as a health aide, uh, I had to go through four sessions, health aide training sessions, and EMT one. And then in between, there's um, just continuous training. Okay, so... Before they bring you on as a health aide, you have to go through these different modules. Is that right? These different mm-hmm. training experiences. Yep. Session one, session two, session three, session four, and uh, they 
they uh, teach a whole lot okay. in a short time, you, you know, one month training. Okay, so they're one month intensives? Mm-hmm. So you were you grew up in Savunga, and did someone ask you about becoming a health aide, or did you apply? How, what does the process work? For I that? I actually applied for a health aide position because they had an opening, and uh-huh. I applied for something else too. Okay, but Norton Sound hired me, so I I took the health aide job back in ninety four. Okay, so this health corporation that runs the regional hospital here, they also supervise or actually hire mm-hmm. the health aides? Yep. Okay. Um, conjoined with the IRA from the village, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. Okay. so you have the tribal organization, mm-hmm. the IRA, and you've got the... Village Health Services here in Nome. Village Health Services, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, they've got these frontline people, the community health aides, and you were one of them for how long, Wanda? I was a health aide for probably close to 15 years. Really? Yeah. So in the training that you got, I understand that they gave you a lot of practical training, mm-hmm. including some obstetric training. Is that right? Yeah. Were you yeah. even delivering babies there? Uh, I've delivered some babies, yeah, okay. in the village. Wow. Yeah. So let's take a, a scenario. Someone in the village has a sore throat. Would would many of the folks there be like folks in the lower 48 and they say, well, this is something minor, we can just take care of it at home? Or are they more likely, you think, to seek out one of the health aids? Um, they, they do come to the clinic, mm-hmm. you know, for minor stuffs. Okay. And so they'd come in and see, would you be functioning similar to a a primary care provider in the lower 48? I mean, are you actually the first person that they see and you actually evaluate them and diagnose and treat them? Did you do all that? In the village, yes, we, the health aide are there and we see um, patients, they schedule appointments. Mm -hmm. And the hospital, the Norton Sound Health Corporation, give us standing orders. Okay. Uh, that we can treat. We use a book. It's the CHAM manual mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we follow. Okay. And it, you know, tells us what to treat the patient with. Okay. Uh, otherwise, uh, if the CHAM, if the book tells us to report to a doctor, uh-huh. a medical doctor. That's what they do. Okay. So tell us some of the exciting things about being a community health worker. Um, there's there's a lot of good out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels good to help people. Um, I really like the job mm-hmm. myself. But you've recently moved to Nome. Mm-hmm. So you enjoyed the job. I, From what I understand, you're very well liked there in the community, and the folks miss you there. Is that true, or am I just making that up? Um, I believe they they do. They did miss me when I quit mm-hmm. as that's a health what, That's what I'd heard. Uh-huh. So basically, you left there just fairly recently, a year or two ago. Do I have the timeline mm-hmm. right? 
Uh, we came here to Nome September last year. Okay, okay. And yeah. why would you leave a, a good job? It pays reasonably well, right, the, the health aid? Mm-hmm. So why would you come to Nome? Because my husband and my daughter needed employment. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they were able to find it more readily here than yeah. in the village. Yeah, uh-huh. So they've got jobs, and you're still working for the corporation, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. And what is your role currently? Um, I'm uh, working as a patient hostel attendant Okay. part-time. So there's a hostel, H-O-S-T-E-L, mm-hmm. across the street from the hospital where we're recording. Mm-hmm. And that's where you house people who come from the villages? Yeah, people come from the villages, and that's where we they stay. Okay, so for an Alaska native who has benefits... Do they pay for the uh, hostel facilities or not? Um, if they're on Medicaid, Medicaid covers it. Uh-huh. Or Denali Kid. Um, otherwise, Indian Health Services, I guess, oh, okay. under TA. Okay. Mm-hmm. So basically, there is lodging services that are covered, and that's primarily for family who are attending folks that are coming through the facility or people that need outpatient care as well can stay there? Um, people who need outpatient care, yeah. Okay. They can stay there too. So you've got these new facilities here. Is that a new facility as well? Yeah, it's fairly new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got the new hospital. You've got the hostel there. You're working there. But I think most of the folks that uh, are tuning in, they're probably most interested in some of your experiences as a uh, as a health aide in the village. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have some interesting stories, things that we can can learn from. Does any 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 events come to mind? Um it's um beneficial job, I guess, you know. Uh-huh. Personally and uh work-wise so you enjoyed your 15 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. It's it gets stressing. It's we get overwhelmed. Well, let me ask you something and this is uh something I'm only learning about. It's a it's a traditional practice here in this part of the uh of the world and it has to do with the fermented meat products. Mm-hmm. Is this something that was done uh traditionally in Savunga? Yes, we do uh, ferment food. Okay. So, village, yes. Well, as as one native person was explaining it to me, they actually bury um, meat and things. Is this something that was done there in Savunga? Yeah. People bury them or uh, certain types we hang them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers that another health professional was telling me that they've actually seen cases of botulism linked to these food products. Is mm-hmm. that something you ever ran into as a health aide? Yes, of course. Really? Well, so tell us. What, I mean, as a, a practicing physician for many years, I've never seen a case of botulism. Mm-hmm. And yet we know it can happen no matter where you live. I mean, home canning, fermenting foods like we're talking about here. How would these people present when they came to you? What would they look like? What would would be happening? Usually, they're not feeling good. They look sick, mm-hmm. pale, or 
you know, different facial color. Okay. They're usually vomiting. Okay. Diarrhea. Uh-huh. Now, I've heard that many people with botulism can have vision problems. Mm-hmm. Blurry yeah. vision. Was that pretty common in your experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you protect against this? How can someone know whether a food that they're fermenting is at risk of botulism or not? Is there anything that, that can be done to prevent um, that? Probably the way it's handled mm-hmm. is a majority majority you know, part of if handled correctly, then we could be safe. Okay. Yeah. And so you see a person, and let's say you suspect botulism mm-hmm. because you saw cases of it. Um, this is a pretty urgent situation, right? Mm-hmm. So what would you do? Um, we'd follow the CHAM, like I said, mm-hmm. and there's a section for botulism. Okay. Um, the book would eventually lead us into it. You know, mm-hmm. we'd get the history from the patient, and mm-hmm. uh, after history and exam, we call the doctor. Okay. And um, the doctor decides what's going to happen next. Okay, so the doctor would typically be like at this facility here. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. go through the emergency room. Is that the typical mm-hmm. way that it works? So you call and the doc and you say, "Well, I'm looking at the manual." And and does that CHAM does that stand for Community Health Aid Manual? Manual, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've got the Community Health Aid Manual. You're looking at it. You're seeing the patient, and you say, "This looks a lot like botulism." And the doctor over the phone says, "I agree." Are they going to try to? Get that person by air as quickly as possible here to... Uh, Depending you know. on the severity, yes. People have been flown here by medevac to Nome. Uh-huh. Otherwise, if it's, um, if it's uh, a little more severe, we've had people flown into Anchorage. Oh, really? So they're yeah. going to size that up and get them to a hospital where they can be appropriately treated. Mm-hmm. I know you've got a lot of exciting stories. We're going to talk about more of them on today's show, Wanda. I'm speaking with Wanda Aya. She's a community health aide in the past. She's still working directly in the area of caring for people and their families with health issues. She's native Alaskan with many amazing insights. You want to stay tuned because there's things that you can learn that can make a difference for you and your family. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more from Wanda Aya in just a minute. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. Navigating this world when you are undereducated can be difficult. I'm Dr. Ben Carson, and I know this for a fact. When I was growing up, my family lived in dire poverty, and because of my poor learning skills, my classmates called me dummy. My life began to turn around when my mother encouraged me to read. I went from the bottom of my class to graduating from Yale University and becoming the youngest director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I know how important it is to nurture a child's dream. When I grow up, I want to become a scientist. I want to be a doctor, just like Ben Carson. 
I hope to become an engineer. I want to be a teacher or maybe a broadcaster. The Carson Scholars Fund is impacting schools across the nation by encouraging children to read, write, and excel at math and science so they can realize their dreams. We need your help. To learn more about the Carson Scholars Fund and to donate, visit our website at carsonscholars.org. After all, the person who has the most to do with your success is you. This is the story of Daniel, who was born two months early. He weighed one pound, seven ounces. His lungs weren't ready. His heart wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. At the hospital, the nurses said Daniel was a fighter, and they would do all they could to help him. The doctor said even with the best care, Daniel may never walk. He may never see. He may never learn. Daniel's parents spent night after night at the hospital, watching his every breath, holding his tiny hands, and looking for signs that he was growing stronger. At home, his parents looked around Daniel's empty nursery, at the quiet toys and the still rocker, and they hoped that one day they could sit in that rocking chair and tell this story to their very healthy son. Daniel's is just one of the more than 500,000 stories of babies born prematurely last year, but there's hope for a happy ending. The March of Dimes is funding the research and programs to stop premature birth. You can help bring more babies home healthy. Learn how at marchofdimes.com. Working together for stronger, healthier babies. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Wanda Aya. She is a former community health aide in the village of Savunga there on St. Lawrence Island, some distance from Nome, Alaska. She's now working in Nome as a attendant at the patient hostel right across the street from the medical facility where we're doing the interview. And Wanda has been sharing with us some fascinating insights from the life of a community health aide for some 15 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, just like I've never seen a, uh, a case of botulism, although in medical school, of course, I had to be involved in the obstetric area. Since getting my medical license, I've never delivered a baby. But there in the villages, you were called on to do all kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And did I understand correctly, you were even trained in basic uh, surgical techniques, suturing people up and all of that? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. So if someone in a urban area would go to the emergency room for a problem, in Savunga, they go to the health clinic and are likely to be seen by a health aide. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I know a lot of what you did from our previous communication was health education. And that was part of every visit, right? Mm-hmm. Every visit, according to the CHAM, we give patient education mm-hmm. after the visit. Now, I know one of the diseases that's rampant in Indian country and that Alaska natives are not spared of is diabetes, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Did that hit close to home for you? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, my mom and her family have real strong history, you know, family history of diabetes. Okay. So when you're seeing someone with diabetes, let's say they come in, uh, maybe it's an infection, maybe they have an ulcer, 
you're going to give them instruction on how to better care for their diabetes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So what type of things would be important for you to communicate? Um, with diabetic patients, you know, they, they take longer to heal mm-hmm. and higher risk of infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the CHAM, we would, my mind went blank. Well, that's fine. Well, this is, I think it's a, it's a good example because what, what we're saying about this is you have this very comprehensive mm-hmm. manual so you don't have to have everything memorized, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you'd be working through this manual, mm-hmm. and you'd be going through some of these points, like you mentioned, higher risk of of non-healing. That's going to take longer to heal. Mm-hmm. Here's a specific question I have for you about the, the ulcer question. I know some individuals have used natural treatments for ulcers. One of them that I know has been used is the alternating application of warm and cold. And I know some tribes in the lower 48 have used hydrotherapy, water treatments. Is that something, are water therapies something that Native Alaskans would use, whether it was for ulcers or for other things? Mm, What I'm thinking of right now is, you know, like moist. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, with dry on top. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like some type of uh, what we'd call it, like a poultice, something mm-hmm. to, to draw infection. Would that be the idea? Mm-hmm. Would they put something in it? Would they put leaves or? No, uh, not that I know of. Okay. So probably not a real strong hydrotherapy used mm-hmm. for ulcers. How about when we go down to the lower forty-eight? You'll see people. Uh, doing sweat lodge or other, uh, some people might say medically it's like a heating treatment, even though many times it's more of a spiritual practice. Is there something analogous to that among Alaska Natives? Do they do any kind of heating treatments for any reason? Uh, I know some Natives use sweat lodges, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, in the in my community on the island, I've never, I've not seen anybody okay. using that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes we'll use heat mm-hmm. to try to uh, induce a sweat. Uh, it may be done in a sauna or a steam bath. And in some northern cultures, I know like some of the northern European, Scandinavian cultures, they would have the sauna and someone get really warm. It's not when they're sick necessarily, and then they'll go into into the cold. This idea of alternating hot and cold. So in Savunga, there was really nothing like that, either recreationally or spiritually or treatment wise, that you saw mm-hmm. growing up in that community. No. How about other native practices or native eating habits or other things that were culturally part of the community? where you would remind villagers, you know, this is what our elders did, and this would help you in that situation. Does anything like that come to mind that you would instruct people in? Mm, There's people who use, you know, plants Uh uh for some treatment. Okay. You know, for colds. Uh Uh-huh. 
urine infection. Okay. Well, let me ask you one specific about that. Now, we have an herb that, at least where I'm from, it's referred to as uva ursi or bear berry. Now, probably all the herbs that you would use there on St. Lawrence Island had native names for the herb. Mm -hmm. Is that safe to say? Yeah, we do have native names for... So if I mention uva ursi or bearberry that has been used by natural practitioners to treat urinary infection, would you have ever heard of something like that? Um, personally, no. I The plants, the names I've, I've learned in my language, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't know what they're called in English. Okay, yeah, <laughs> so that's going to be the challenge on this uh-huh. show, right? Because you could tell us all these wonderful things about natural plants, but we'd be saying, well, what is that? You know, is that anything that I've heard of before? So it uh, would be in the Yupik language? Siberian Yupik, Siberian Yupik. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a different language altogether from people with Yupik background that are not from Siberian ancestry. Is that true? Mm-hmm. So you couldn't even understand someone who uh, spoke a different Yupik uh, native language? Um, I can figure, you know, what they're saying. Uh-huh. But I guess the majority of it, I I probably wouldn't understand. Wow, so that's yeah. uh, so that's interesting. But everyone there in Savunga pretty much spoke the same language. Yeah, on the island, Gamble and Savunga, we speak Siberian Yupik. Okay, so let's come back to this plant connection. And the reason I'm coming back to it is not that we're going to walk away from the discussion and say, okay, I know all these different natural remedies now. But I'm just I'm just curious as to what comes to mind as far as natural remedies. Did they have natural herbal remedies, for example, for diabetes? Do you know? Mm, not that I know of. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and there, I'll tell you why I asked you the question, mm-hmm. and your answer was what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Because in my research of traditional native remedies in the lower 48 tribes did not have traditional remedies for diabetes. And the best explanation from the sociologists and anthropologists and from other evidence as well is that First Nation peoples did not have problems with diabetes before European Mm -hmm. contact. Yeah. Uh, I guess if we ate our native foods, you know, as the main food and didn't do any other food, we probably wouldn't have diabetes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what a lot of the research uh-huh. seems to indicate. So was that something that you would ever encourage people to do if they came with diabetes? Would you say eat more of the native foods? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, many of the tribes in the lower 48, they uh, actually, historically, even before European contact, and especially before, had a strong agricultural base. So there's accounts of Europeans coming to Florida, finding huge cultivated fields. Uh, Some of the first Europeans who came to what would be Kansas today, again, huge cultivated uh, fields. Uh, In the Southwest, among the uh, Hoakam people, the uh, ancestors of the Pimas and the Tahana Adams, again, they were cultivating large tracts of land. 
But now this is a different story in Alaska because you don't have a long growing season here, do you? No. Were you able to grow a lot of things, or was it more just gathering plants that were growing? We gather, you know, they they grow on their own depending on um, how the season went. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's too cold or too rainy or something that affects the growth. Okay. Now, I've not been to Savunga, but I've heard mm-hmm. it's, it's quite rocky and a lot of gravel on the beach and things. Mm-hmm. Is that tundra. Tundra. Yeah. So it's not really a practical area to uh, to make a farm. I don't think so. You You never saw that? No. Wanda, thank you so much for sharing your insights as a community health aide in Savunga and a little bit about your work here in Nome. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're not finished with today's edition of American Indian Living. We've got more coming up in our next segment. Dr. David DeRose here on location in Nome, Alaska. More great material. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease, and she showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. As Native Americans and Alaska Natives, we have the power to prevent diabetes. Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and making healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. For more information, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Corporal John Vale was on patrol when his truck flipped. I realized I can't move my legs. When John arrived at the VA, Paralyzed Veterans of America was there to advocate for him and help John with his claim. PVA has helped hundreds of thousands of veterans get the care and benefits they've earned, and their service is free. If you need help with a claim or just navigating the system, contact us at pva.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, we're going back in our mind's eye around this program 
to St. Lawrence Island. We're not going to Wanda's community, but we're going to another village. It's the village of Gamble, and we're going to be seeing it through the eyes of another native Alaskan. In the studio now with me is Reva Bulawan. She's uh, St. Lawrence uh, Yupik. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, too. Thank you. Now, Reva, you currently are residing in Nome, correct? I am. But you were raised out on St. Lawrence Island. I was raised in Gamble, yes. So for those of our listeners who maybe haven't been with us from the beginning of the hour, tell us, in relation to Nome, where St. Lawrence Island is. St. Lawrence Island is it's on it's 200 miles from Nome, and you can only get there by airplane. Okay, so there's no way to get a boat. Yeah, get... uh, well, it depends on the weather, but that's Bering Sea, so okay. <laughs> it's possible, but it's not recommended. Now, I know flying in from Anchorage, we flew over at least, it was, um, I guess, Norton Sound coming here, which is continuous with the Bering Sea, right? Yes. And uh, at this time of year, it was mostly ice. That's what I saw down there. So, but there was still water, so there wasn't any easy way to traverse large distances. No, um, actually, there's there hasn't been any ice. Um, I on Facebook, oh, okay. I see my family posting um, large waves, which is totally different um, for this time of the year. So it's impact our weather's changing. So for folks who realize this is a pre-recorded show. We're recording actually in Nome, Alaska at the end of February. And so this is a time of year when historically everything would just be iced in. Mm, yes, it would be completely iced in. And I know we've had other Native Alaskans on the show, even scientists who are saying, if anybody doubts global warming, you just come up to Alaska and talk with the elders, Right. Right. Yeah, there was, um, even here a couple of days ago, um, when the storm was starting, there was lightning and thunder, and it's February, and, it, and it's a gnome. Not supposed to happen. Nope. Well, let's, let's talk about some of your perspectives on, uh, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about what it was like. You grew up in Gamble. Are there just those two villages on St. Lawrence Island? Gamble and Savunga. Uh-huh. Yes. And so basically, how big an island is it? Do you have it's an idea? It's a large, pretty large island. Um, I heard it was like the number eight biggest island in the world. I don't really? know. I don't know. It's huge. Okay. So, and how close were Gamble and Savunga? 36 miles, well, 30 or 40 miles apart from Savunga. And we're only 36 from um, Serenike, I think. From so, Russia. Okay. So was there a way to travel easily from Savunga to Gamble? Yeah, we they use snowmobiles, four-wheelers, boats. Okay. So is it safe to say historically that um, the folks in Savunga originally started in Gamble? Because I've heard that Gamble is one of the oldest communities. Yeah, I... Uh, um, I think Savunga was a reindeer herding community, so it, they kind of, in that location, they um, sort of stayed there year-round, I guess, mm -hmm. became Savunga. 
Okay, and is there still a lot of reindeer on the yes, island? Yes, actually, yeah. Um, there, when I was growing up um, in Gamble, I remember waking up Christmas morning. I can't remember what year it was. I think it was 1980-something or in the early 90s. I remember my dad went to to behind or go on the mountain on, on Gamble and he came back home and said there was a bunch of reindeer on top of the mountains. Um, and we hadn't seen rain. I, well, I hadn't seen reindeers since I was living there. Uh huh. So that Christmas morning, they just came back huh. from years of being gone. Really interesting. Sort of like a Christmas gift. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, we figured they came through on the ice from Russia. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. uh, yeah. So you have this uh this very indigenous upbringing, grew up in this uh small village. How how big is Gamble? How many people? Any idea? Right now I want to say there's about 750 people. Okay. And it was similar when you were growing up? Yeah, about 6 650 maybe. Okay. Now you're in Nome, uh-huh. very different place. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what kind of experience it was coming from a village to what many people would say, at least in this part of the world, is a, a huge city. Yeah, it's a hub town for sure. Um, I moved here about 15 years ago. Um, I didn't, never thought I would move to Nome. Uh-huh. Never imagined, even never dreamt of living here. Um, I moved here. I was traditionally married out on the island. So I moved to Nome um, so we can have, well, basically because there's no housing here or in Gamble. Uh Um, There's there's no housing. I got a job here. So what did that, what what changes happened in your, in your lives as a family? When you came from the village, what, what was your diet like, first of all, when you lived in Gamble? My diet consisted mostly of native foods on a regular basis. And what would those include? Um, seal, walrus, fish, um, reindeer. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but it also consisted of unhealthy foods such as soda, chips, and pop, which is very readily available on the island. Really? In Gamble? In, there was soda, yeah, chips, and yeah. pop? And, and I have to admit, I drank those on a regular basis also, living on the island. Huh. But moving here, that pretty much changed everything um, to um, my kids um, started wrestling uh-huh. early in school here in Nome. From since they could start to wrestle, um, I think in first or second grade. Uh huh. So we had to um, change our diet. Um, okay. We had to cut the soda out. Uh huh. The the chips and the junk food and everything else. Really? Yeah. So that cha- I don't. We don't buy any soda anymore, and we try to eat healthy. Um, all the processed foods are. The, the ones I've been eating on the island growing up, um, I always thought, well, 
they were good. They're processed and they're full of sugar and salt. Uh, so they're really they tasted good. Uh-huh. But moving to Nome um, make me realize that they're not so good. They're they're not good at all. This is a fascinating story because a lot of people, and and I'll be honest with you, myself included, when. I was told about you, Reva. Someone said, well, you need to talk with Reva. She has roots in Gamble, you know, came from a traditional native Alaskan village. And when you started talking about the diet, I'm, you know, I'm listening. Okay, so, you know, walrus and seal and reindeer. But I was not prepared. I, I really, I'm just being honest with you. I was not prepared to hear that in that village, that traditional village, you were eating all this Western junk food. Yeah. Plenty of the and they, and then you came to a town that many people would say was more westernized, like Nome. And when you came here, you got away from those junk foods that you grew up with. I mean, it, this yeah. is totally not what I expected in the interview. Well, yeah. Well, the junk food—it's um, very um, readily available here. Also, uh-huh. uh, it's cheaper. Uh-huh. But we, I mean. We had to change our diet to mm-hmm. mostly to it, well, it was wrestling, so I did it with them. Um, we, I'm a label reader now, sort of. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> organic stuff. I don't buy organic because they're mostly they're expensive. Uh huh. Especially here, I can imagine. Yeah. No. Yeah, but I we try to not to buy any sodas or junk food, and only special occasions and. Um, like basketball games are mm-hmm. big. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, this is this is fascinating. So, this is uh, really a, a different perspective than than I was expecting. But what I hear happening is Western culture has gotten a huge foothold, even in villages that might seem quite remote. Mm-hmm. And sometimes. It's other connections with, we might even say, Western culture, a Western educational system, and wrestling. I, I There were always games, I know, in Indian country, but wrestling probably was not a cultural thing, or was it? It, it was a big, it was a very big cultural thing. Out in Gamo there, they had competitions on wrestling. Really? And going way back? Going way back. My, I think my kids are naturally gifted as well as my nieces and nephews really um my nephew is a four-time state champion wow consecutively and he's he made history tremendous so yeah so a freshman sophomore junior yeah all four really yeah all four years that's my nephew and then my um other son was a regional champ and Uh Their my my other teenager follows their footsteps, you know. Wow, that's in wrestling. So, were there other sports that were part of your cultural identity growing up in Gamble? Other sports? Yeah, beside wrestling, were there was swimming or running or any other sports? Basically, I mean, running, swimming. Of course, we live on an island. Um, We never actually. We're taught swimming hmm. uh, when I went to school. Um, Everyone just knew how to swim? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why I'm asking the question is some years ago, I was in an island nation, and 
I was there and I noticed that none of the locals were swimming or were on the beach. And there, it wasn't a very populated place. There weren't many people, period, there. But sometimes you think, well, someone lives near water, they're going to be swimming. But sometimes that water isn't safe or there's uh, creatures in the water that are dangerous and people grow up more with an ethic of boating or uh, or fishing, but not so much swimming. So that's why I was just curious. Yeah, it's, or it's just plain cold. Uh, well, <laughs> it's I can just imagine. too cold. <laughs> so year-round, it never really gets that warm in the Bering Sea, I would imagine. No, it's too cold, for one. And the oh, the currents are just rough. It's the Bering Sea. We have a small lake on the island in uh-huh. Gamble. We swam there or so we thought okay okay <laughs> well let's let's talk now about the contrast between health care so in gamble i know there's a, a clinic and of course here we're recording the show in the norton sound regional hospital we're going to talk in our final segment about the contrast in medical care and, and what difference that makes for a family, for a community. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're, we're getting an interesting look at Native culture through the eyes of Native Alaskan women. We've got more coming up in our final segment of American Indian Living. Stay tuned for more. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. Navigating this world when you are undereducated can be difficult. I'm Dr. Ben Carson, and I know this for a fact. When I was growing up, my family lived in dire poverty, and because of my poor learning skills, my classmates called me dummy. My life began to turn around when my mother encouraged me to read. I went from the bottom of my class to graduating from Yale University and becoming the youngest director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I know how important it is to nurture a child's dream. When I grow up, I want to become a scientist. I want to be a doctor, just like Ben Carson. I hope to become an engineer. I want to be a teacher or maybe a broadcaster. The Carson Scholars Fund is impacting schools across the nation by encouraging children to read, write, and excel at math and science so they can realize their dreams. We need your help. To learn more about the Carson Scholars Fund and to donate, visit our website at carsonscholars.org. After all, the person who has the most to do with your success is you. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. (laughs) 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with me, Reva Bulawan. She's from St. Lawrence Island. She's also of UPIC background, and uh, she and Wanda... Aya have been giving us a perspective on these two communities, two villages, Native Alaskan villages, Savunga, and now uh, we're talking here about Gamble, the other village that someone was telling me the uh, anthropologists have looked at Gamble and they said this goes, this community goes back over 2,000 years. Have you heard figures like that? Yeah. Now, one of the newer things in Gamble is a health clinic. They have these health aides there, these community health aides that we have featured on American Indian Living before. I'm just interested. You're you're a mother living here now in Nome. What does the medical experience of your kids look like in contrast to what it was for you as a child growing up in Gamble? The medical difference... The size, of course, um, it's the hospitals. This is a hub community, so in Norton Sound. So I think getting care is easier in Nome mm-hmm. because it's readily available. Okay. Um, the medicine, the appointments, or even walk-ins like today. Mm-hmm. I walked in my child for pink eye, and we were in and out in less than an hour, so that was nice. That is great. Mm-hmm. So how would that have been in uh, in Gamble if someone had pink eye? You couldn't just go to the clinic there? Yeah, well, it, they don't have—I don't think they have fast track um, where you can just walk in, um, and they only see— emergencies after hours. Okay. So that would be kind of difficult to... Whereas here in Nome, you've actually got an emergency room. Yeah. They call it the fast track. Um, Uh Not really an emergency. It's only until 8 o'clock at night. I see. So we have that service here in Nome. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So medical services are more readily available. Mm -hmm. How about the treatment? Does it seem the same? I mean, if your child had pink eye and gamble, would you have been worried that he wouldn't get appropriate treatment? I'm I'm sure he would get appropriate, you know, medicine. Mm-hmm. He would he would receive those. It might take a little longer. I mean, maybe it wouldn't the medicine they could be out, and they'd have to order it mm. from Nome. And okay, you got to wait for the flight, and then weather permitting. Yeah, I've learned that phrase, weather permitting. There's yeah. a number of people that I've been dealing with who are either planning to fly out or fly in to Nome. And since we've had a winter storm here lately, uh, a lot of those flights haven't been coming or going. Have no, they? you could tell at the stores. <laughs> oh, okay. Even here in Nome. So uh, the availability of foods rapidly diminishes when flights aren't coming in. Yes. Okay, well, so there's some... Basic similarities, you were getting, you know, you had access to care there in in Gamble, but more availability here in Nome, and I think everyone would expect that. 
But what about the traditional values? There's a lot of Native Alaskans here in Nome, and it seems like, as I listen to your story, you actually connected with a number of Native values more here in Nome than you did in your traditional village. You were connecting with healthier eating habits here, with exercise, you know, with the wrestling for your kids. Am, am I hearing something that you're not saying, or is that really true? It's yeah, it's true. Um, I changed we I changed my family's diet. Um, we actually have a schedule. Um, where in where where we lived in Gamble, um, twelve o'clock midnight is kind of early. Really? To go to bed. But where in here in Nome, um, we have a schedule we need to abide by or else our day doesn't go so well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like trying to catch buses, going right. to appointments, uh-huh. going to 6.30 practice or 6.30 practice at night, depending on um, what my children's schedule is. Um, our days start way earlier um, then when I lived there, um, um, a lot of structure, a lot of discipline, um, more competition um, in schools, more opportunities to travel outside of Nome. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, you know, as I've talked to people from traditional communities in other places, now the reason I'm saying other places I understand the daylight issue is very different up here in Nome than in the lower 48. But many indigenous communities, as I talk with people, they say traditionally we were a people that got up when the sun came up and things wound down when the sun went down. But in the winter months, at least in the heart of the winter, you don't have much daylight here in Nome, do you? No. Yeah, I was amazed this morning. Now, I know we're already in February, so the days have been getting progressively longer. But it was 8 in the morning. It was still as dark as I would have expected it to be in the middle of the night. Yep, it was still dark. Yep. And so does that do something in the villages? Is that part of why people stay up late? Because Yeah, I believe that's why um, we, you know, the sun was our clock. Uh (laughs) The um, seasons, depending on the seasons. So in the summer, it's midnight. It's totally bright out. It's like midday. Is is that's what I've been told? Is that yeah. an exaggeration? No, that's totally true. Okay, it's like midnight, and it's it looks like it's in the afternoon. Wow. So basically, there's some unique. We would say in the medical circles chronobiological challenges. It has to do with our internal time clocks. It just kind of messed up because of the the huge variance in the light and dark cycle. Now, from a Native perspective, I'm very interested in this because we know that adequate sleep has a lot to do with healing and suppressing inflammation. But I'm wondering, people that have lived with that huge fluctuation in day cycle, were there certain traditional beliefs you heard growing up about the light and dark phases that made sense to you? Not really. I mean, I know it's more difficult to go to sleep in the summer. 
Okay. It's lighter and it's warmer and you don't get that long. You only get a couple, three months, four months of warmth and light. And it's it's really, really difficult to keep a schedule, Mm. the Western schedule (laughs) that I'm currently in. Um, But it's... um, once you get a schedule down, it's fairly easy mm-hmm. to go to sleep, even though it's light. Okay. But it's it's very difficult. It's beautiful out. Uh, uh, it's warm. It's light. Uh, Don't get much. And so it, did you hear that growing up? Did people say it's okay when you were little? It's okay to stay up late? I mean, you might as well enjoy it during the summer? Or was that not a cultural value? It, it was It was normal. Um, I was, you know, we didn't actually tell, I mean, my parents didn't tell me it was okay. They just did. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we just did. Um, we're visual learners. I I found that out during my training. Uh Uh (laughs) So yeah, um, we just did what our parents did or whatever the grownups did. And in the winter months, did they stay up just as late and gamble when you were growing up, or did people... Not as late, Uh but pretty late. (laughs) Well, you know, and I've mentioned this uh, already, but uh, Reva, it's interesting to me as we speak about timing that um, some cultures in the lower 48 and elsewhere... They had this advantage of a more regular clock. And, and I I feel uncomfortable even saying an advantage because your people have thrived here in Alaska for, for centuries. But at the same time, there are some challenges. We've talked a little bit about them. But you've just helped us to really think and, and look through different eyes and uh, really even uh, look at some of the stereotypes we've had in a different way. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts as we wind up today's edition of American Indian Living? Um, I don't have any thoughts, really. Um, Alaska's a beautiful place. <laughs> well, I agree with your assessment. It's, uh, it's definitely a vast and uh, an amazing place. Reva, thank you so much for taking time to join us. We've been looking today on today's show on American Indian Living at uh, some, what I would say, are fascinating insights at Native Alaskan communities. We've uh, featured two communities, two villages, Gamble and uh, its sister community there on St. Lawrence Island. And hopefully it's helped you connect with your roots, with your background as well. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.